0: All right. We'll turn to our Bibles. Turn to Second uh, Timothy, and chapter three. And uh, we're going to start off with a very familiar scripture, maybe one we're using a, a bit more often nowadays. <clears throat> but I'm sure we've all read it at various times. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, this is Paul writing to Timothy, but of course he's writing to all of us, no matter where we come from. It says in verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now I think we recognise that the times in which we live have become more and more difficult uh, in recent years. I'm sure they've always had their degree of difficulty, But uh, the the word perilous is is a very interesting word. If you look up your dictionaries, and I have done that, it says fraught with danger, hazardous, unsafe, treacherous, exposed to imminent risk of disaster or ruin. So it's a great word, perilous. And um, we we can identify the sort of things that these uh, verses that follow talk about as far as the general state of the world is concerned. But Paul is writing to Timothy and to us because he is concerned not about the world and what they're doing as such and uh, how they cope or don't cope or what path they decide to choose, but what influence or impact the world may have on Timothy or us in particular, as uh, we see these things unfolding in our time and generation. So he was concerned that somehow or other it would influence us, that we might be distracted or deceived or caught out or moved aside by some of the things in which the world is, is portraying now and, and totally embroiled in. So that was the concern, and that's always our concern. If you read on, it says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. We've pointed out many times that that uh, starting point is not coincidental. That's where it all stems from, which is called the me generation today. And, so, uh, and you hear about it, even when you're listening to various uh, news reports or ch- uh, Channel 24 or whatever, they, they actually refer to this generation uh, that way on numerous occasions. Uh, and people in Talkback and so on have identified that it's a very selfish era in which we live. Now, I'm sure that every generation probably thinks that the next one or the one before has been out of step. Uh, but it, it's becoming increasingly more obvious. And so the Amplified Bible says men shall be, and women too, no doubt, utterly self-centered. And that, of course, is totally contrary to what a Christian is supposed to be quite the absolute opposite to what we're supposed to be doing we're not meant to be self-centered at all so we're very different or we're supposed to be very different to the way the world operates but the way the world operates uh, starts off with being utterly self-centered and all the rest of this stuff flows from that. If we get the first part wrong, if we're so focused on ourselves and our own desires and what we want to do and how we want to do it and when we want to do it and to whom we want to do it, if we're so caught up with all of that, then the rest follows automatically. It goes on to say, and I'm not going to dwell on these particularly, this is only a starting point, covetous. Well, it's not a bad one for the second one because we live in a very covetous age. We are bombarded to be encouraged to be covetous. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. You would think you'd be reading just the local newspaper or the TV summary or whatever, the news broadcast here. This is a prophecy and it's been fulfilled almost to to every individual letter here. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. Incontinent means no self control or unrestrained. If there is an age where there is no self control, where we want to do what we want to do, this is it. And that, of course, naturally is based on being utterly self-centred. We don't care about the influence on others, the effect of others, uh, how it may or may not be helpful or whatever. We just want to do what we want to do. And we'll do that in a variety of ways. We'll let our imaginations and our our desires and the emotions run free. Fierce, despises of those that are good, traitors. There are even people from Australia, as you well know, that go overseas and uh, and fight for uh, the terrorists against Australia or similar such people. Uh, well, that's one example of it. Heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It's interesting that the, the list starts off with lovers of their own selves being utterly self-centered. And of course, it flows on to uh, lovers of pleasure because we we're so... Uh, desirous of of pleasing ourselves that we don't care about anybody. We don't care about God. We don't care, generally speaking, about our fellow man. Now, I'm talking generally. There are some individual people who are quite different to that, who are very conscious of other people and so on, devote their life to this cause or that cause or whatever. Paul wasn't highlighting individual people here. He was simply talking about a, a state that we would find ourselves in as we do in this day and age and uh, they're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, and we are very good at inventing an amazing array of things to please ourselves, to satisfy ourselves. Every aspect of our life, we are having uh, things bombarded at us that the way we could improve ourselves and, and have all this and enjoy this and go here and do that and eat this and watch that and so on. That's because the the advertisers and the world generally knows that we are utterly self-centred, and therefore we're going to be drawn in to things which are going to satisfy that utterly self-centeredness and in the middle of all of that stuff we have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof from such turn away there is a lot of religious things going on and uh, tragically enough there are a lot of people who are spirit filled who deny the fact that you need to have the power of the Holy Ghost in your life to be saved to be a Christian. And there are those who uh, you wouldn't even know they were spirit-filled. You find out many years later this person had this experience some time before because they deny the power thereof. They live a life which is denying constantly the power of God. They don't acknowledge the miraculous foundation, you must be born again, nor do they acknowledge in their lifestyle how we should conduct ourselves through and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in many ways, either directly or indirectly, people are denying the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of God, the power of the miraculous in people's lives. And they live their life, unfortunately, accordingly. And uh, it shows. And uh, down in verse 13, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul is concerned here, not about just identifying the signs of the times for us. We can do that and we can set up a, a PowerPoint presentation and we can advertise it and we can get people in and identify the signs of the times. He was more concerned about how it would affect us. What we're going to do with it in the last days. Are we going to be deceived? Inadvertently, are we going to be sucked into the the situation which the world has developed over recent times? Another translation says, that these people go on from bad to worse, deceiving and leading astray others, and being deceived and led astray their very selves. So we have lots of other things that we're being, religion is one of them, and and a a form of sort of godliness is there, but it comes in different forms, humanism, socialism, uh, materialism, commercialism, we've we've got all this sort of thing, evolutionism, if that's a word, Um, we're being deceived into believing that you don't really need God, what you need is things, stuff. What you need is to enjoy your life. What you need is entertainment. What you need is to be bombarded uh, your senses uh, in any possible way you possibly can to uh, to satisfy yourself. And uh, we're being deceived. And there are even very religious people, so-called Christians, who would go down this path as well. And they uh, have just as much involvement in the ways of the world that the world does. And Paul is concerned, don't get caught out. So he says uh, uh, to uh, Timothy here in verse 14, obviously not wanting him to be deceived, not wanting us to be caught out by the subtleties and the alternatives and the substitutes and uh, all the other counterfeits that are out there and all the the deceptions that can insidiously uh, get in, in the way. He says, but, contrary to all of that stuff in the first 13 verses, Continue thou, you continue Timothy, or you continue Darrell, or you continue whoever your name is in there. You continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. We, we've got something which the world hasn't got. We've got a teaching and an appreciation and understanding and a direction which the world tragically does, is most unlikely to get. And it says in case of in Timothy, he was brought up as a child, and many of you here have been brought up in the Lord. I came to the Lord when I was 25, but uh, others have come uh, much earlier than that. Some have been born into the family where the, the spirit-filled parents were going along to their fellowship. But it doesn't matter, uh, whatever stage you came, as from a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which were able to make thee wise under salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. But Paul is saying here, you can go back to the Old Testament and you will find the, the, the salvation message. Now in the New Testament, with faith, you mix it with, with what the Lord has given us in, in Jesus Christ. So now we've got uh, the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God combined in our day and age. Uh, To give us wisdom under salvation. That's what I want to focus on a little bit today being wise under salvation. The world regards itself as incredibly knowledgeable, and it is in many ways. But the more knowledge we get, and the more wisdom we think we've got, and the more understanding we believe, then we push God further and further aside. We don't need God. We can become even more utterly self centred because we have the answer, we've got the gadgets. We've got the mechanisms. We've got the means by which we can make our life work. We're going to solve our problems. We've even solved the problem where the universe came from, apparently. We've solved the problem about where we came from. We've invented theories and ideas and concepts all the time which focus on us, our ability, our knowledge, our reasoning, our insights and all the rest of it and our so-called wisdom and all the time we've missed the most real bit of wisdom that we've ever got to latch onto being wise under salvation. That's the only real wisdom that we need to consider. That's not to say we neglect our studies or we neglect anything else in our learning process. You can do all of that. But you can be the most learned person on earth and be totally ignorant and stupid about the things concerning God. And you will not be wise under salvation even if you're some wise guru in the world. So Paul is reminding all of us here that this is the answer. How to get saved? and how to stay saved. We often talk to people about how we, there's only really two preaching uh, procedures, only two types of talks really, how to get saved and how to stay saved. We cloud it with different words and different ways of doing it and so on but the, end, the bottom line is always telling people how to get saved. If you're a visitor here today, let's tell us, we'll tell you how to get saved. You've got to be baptised in water, filled with the Holy Spirit and you'll speak in tongues as God's power comes upon you to identify that. Now that's not made up, that's in the Bible and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll identify numerous scriptures telling people how to get saved. Now there are many alternatives and deceptions out there many a person's been stirred up and and roused in meetings and and run down the aisles and given their heart to the Lord and fallen over and, and done all sorts of things but that's a deception. You don't get saved by doing any of that stuff. You get saved by God and what he does through Christ and by the spirit, the workmanship of God, the grace and faith of God. And staying saved, that's what most of this book's about. We can couch it in all sorts of other terms and words and so on. At the end of the day, most times when you get up here, you're telling people, you're telling people how it all works as far as our salvation is concerned and making sure that we are there when the Lord returns. We believe perilous times are indicating the return of the Lord. Because the only solution to the world's problems, individually, yes, we get spirit-filled, but to the world's problems, we need a king of kings. We need a change of government. We need someone to come into power now that's going to do righteously and keep his promises and do all that's necessary. So this is what Paul is telling Timothy here about those things. Go down to verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be perfect, complete, thoroughly, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So we combine the word and God's Spirit through faith in the Lord and Jesus Christ, and what He's achieved, and we've got the solution here to all of life's requirements. We have the wisdom here under salvation, and by salvation we are talking not about just today. We're talking about the return of Jesus Christ, rising to meet the Lord in the air accelerating up to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever into the eternities the Lord has got in store for us. So the Bible is able to do that for us. Let's, uh, I'm going to quote that scripture uh, from the Amplified. Every scripture is God-breathed, given by his inspiration, and profitable for instruction, for reproof and conviction of sin, for correction of error and discipline in obedience and for training in righteousness, in holy living, in conformity to God's will, in thought, purpose, and action, so that the man or woman of God may be complete and proficient, well-fitted, and thoroughly equipped. That's all about being wise unto salvation. There is no other wisdom, really, that's critical. We may or may not know about lots of bits and pieces in life, and uh, we might be called on to display our knowledge to people and help them out and so on. Well, that's good. Maybe we'll get the car going. Maybe we'll get the computer running again. Maybe something else will happen, get a bit of wisdom about uh, marriage guidance or how to bring up children or whatever. That's all good and proper. But ultimately, there's only one thing that's critical, and that's being wise under salvation. That's what we're here for. It's what we're on the planet for. Gain some wisdom and insight and in how God operates and how God expects us to operate and what we've got to do. How to get saved and how to stay saved. That's vital. And we can never apologise for, and we never would, uh, for trying to encourage people to do exactly that. Um, it goes on in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 because it should follow on. I mean, this is, uh, the chapter headings are, are our doing. Uh, I charge you, therefore... Since we want you to be wise under salvation, since it's critical that we understand the word of God, since we read it's not just any book, it's not just some man's ideas, this is the word of God, this is God inspired, God went to the trouble to move upon individual people, lots of them throughout the, the Bible, and to write down and to give to us his message, his instruction, his wisdom. He did that for a purpose, because he wants us to be saved. He wants us to be saved from the wrath to come. Saved from this uh, uh, present evil world. He wants us to be delivered and set free. He wants to give us the eternities. He set, therefore, the word of God, mixed with faith and in Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost experience. I charge you, therefore, Timothy, and us, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Focus on the word of God. Don't be embarrassed about the Word of God. Don't hold back on the Word of God. Don't be shy about it. Don't feel that, uh, oh, we're overstepping the mark here. This is critical. Preach the Word. Be instant in season and out of season, whether it's a, uh, uh, convenient or inconvenient. Well, we're going to be well-received or not well-received. We shouldn't change. The trouble is the world has changed. We're living in a politically correct world now. It's crazy. We're meant to embrace anything and everything now. We're not allowed to say anything against anybody. We're not even allowed to discipline. You know, tell your child that's wrong, don't do that. I mean, I, I hear of people who are told in school now not to put a red cross against a, a something that was wrong because that will upset the child and damage them for life. If it's wrong, it's wrong, and we need to tell people it's wrong. We are not out to get people and put great big red cross over a little kid He's only three years old and, and make him destroyed. No, but but if, it's, if it's not right, then it's wrong. And we need to tell people what is right. And so Paul has been t- is telling us here, the word of God is right. And don't be frightened to tell people what's wrong and what's right and what's got to be done. You, I charge you. I commission you, Timothy, to stand up. You're a young person, I know. And the older ones might say, oh, you're only a young person. What have you known about life and how long you've been around? I've been around a long time and I've been here and I've done that. Don't worry. You're relying on the word of God, Timothy. You're not relying on natural knowledge, the experiences you've had over the years. You're relying here on what God says because God's word is inspired. It's Holy Ghost inspirited. Therefore, stand up and be counted. And he goes on to say, reprove, rebuke. Exhort with all suffering and doctrine. Now, in the space of four verses, he said that twice now. In an age which is perilous, because we won't say it. We won't get up and name what's got to be named. We won't say, for example, homosexuality is an abomination. We're too frightened to say that now. I don't know why I picked on that one, but it's an obvious one in this day and age. We do the opposite to that. Oh, you, oh where's your love? Where's your concern? Where's your consideration? Paul has been, told, been telling us here in verse 16 of the previous verse I want you to use the doctrine I want you to use the standards and fundamentals of this book and when you do that you I want you to in, in verse 16 I want you to repro- for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness and in verse 2 rebuke excuse me rebuke exhort and reprove now they're pretty strong words and we use them appropriately we use them when it applies uh, and, and, and Paul is uh, saying, we'll use them. Use the word of God to, to correct, redirect, discipline. Why? He wants us to be wise unto salvation. And if we go around putting a tick or well done against a person who said two plus two is six, because we don't want to upset the little darlings, then what we're going to produce is people who haven't got a clue what they're doing. And when they go down to the street and they're supposed to be given $2 and $2 from this friend, they'll expect 6 Now No, there'll be a fight on. Oh, that's a stupid example, I realise. But I'm trying to just make the point that we need to learn about salvation. We need to learn what we're supposed to be doing. If that offends, well, blessed is that man who's not offended for my name's sake. If it pricks our conscience, hallelujah. If it makes us change our ways, hallelujah. If it makes a, a, us a, a different person and a, and a, and a more Christian like person and a more scriptural like person, well, hallelujah. Now, there's always extremes. People say, oh, well, you know, you can't over discipline a child, they'll be ruined, and so on. Of course, that's true. So if you under discipline a child, they'll be hopeless. And if you over-discipline a child, they'll also be hopeless. But if you discipline them correctly and advisably and wisely, well, they'll hopefully be a good child. I mean, there's no guarantees, but you do what you can. A child in the Lord is supposed to be disciplined exactly the same way. If you have no discipline for children in the Lord, they'll absolutely be spiritual delinquents. Simple as that. If you over-discipline, they won't understand and appreciate the confidence they have in Christ. It's got to be done just the same. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine. I think it's come. Well and truly come. All sorts of trouble when you talk to people about anything today, if if you're determined about what you believe. We are determined about you've got to be born again. We'll have all sorts of opposition and persecution. We get it all the time. People think we're just as harsh as anything. And when we're strong about morality and, and lifestyle and choices and so on again the world struggles with us but in these perilous times the most critical thing Paul is telling us here is be wise unto salvation Not got to be concerned about that particularly as we see things approaching let's go back to Proverbs I'm going to use an example I've used before well I'm sure many people have used them before written to Timothy there that you can go to the Old Testament and get some wisdom so let's do that Proverbs chapter 30 verse 24 there be four things which are little upon the earth but they are exceeding wise Well, if they're exceeding wise, we might get some wisdom under salvation from them. And I'm sure the Lord has put into place uh, in his creation and in his Bible lots of examples for us. And I'm just picking this particular one. There's dozens of others, no doubt we could pick in different ways. But the Lord is saying here that I'm giving you four illustrations of four creatures which are, are really somewhat insignificant and of no great consequence, we might say, in their life uh, but there's something about each one of them that counteracts their limitation and their weakness. And so being wise unto salvation is having the same appreciation that we would have our vulnerabilities, we will have our weaknesses, we will have our limitations. What are we going to do in the Lord to counterbalance that? How are we going to redirect our life to make sure that those things are not going to expose us or ultimately destroy us? So we got here some examples that the Lord gives us. Verse 25 says... The ants are a people, not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Now, each one of these examples, it sort of highlights a, a limitation, then it highlights an alternative, which they do. So one thing is we learn from the ants, I think, is diligence. I've often said, I don't know whether you can ever see an ant standing still. Where they are, they always seem to be running around. And if you put a sugar bowl out there, they'll be out there and they'll tell their mates too. And there'll be a lot of activity. Uh, that's what they do. ants are by God's inbuilt smartness. Uh, counterbalancing some of the things that we obviously can identify in our life that need counterbalancing as well. So they they might have their limitation, but they prepare for the future. And if they see an opportunity, if they see a bowl of sugar, as it were, they're going to send their mates out to really stock up and be ready for that and apply themselves to to getting a, a good storehouse for the future. So it says in Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. I love that word, sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. So we've been told here, look at these four illustrations. For what purpose? To be wise. What wisdom do we gain from an ant? Oh, well, we we know they've got some limitations. You get a mortine can out and you can get rid of a thousand in one sweep. Uh, So they're certainly not going to be fighting back and and dealing with your uh, attack. However, given an opportunity, they will grasp it. They will take their chance. So there is unremitting application to their task at hand, and every one of them in the uh, colony and, and an ant's involvement is usually based around their colony. Uh, we could say the church, if you like, based around the colony where uh, that is critical to them, and they all have got a part to play in that. So you can study ants to, as we have in the past, and perhaps looked at a few different examples of different types of ants and what they do, but that they make a contribution. They've got a part to play and they apply themselves to it. They make the most of their opportunities. So in a sense, not that ants are thinking and planning ahead, but God has implanted in them some smartness about doing such things and they're active and organised and contributing and playing their part. If you go back to chapter 24 for a moment, we will come back, but chapter 24, verse 30. <clears throat> I went by the field of the slothful, another great word, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding, and light was all grown over with thorns and nettles and covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. I got some wisdom about it. Now, we know that if you, the second law of thermodynamics will come into play every time. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. But... The, If you leave and neglect... Things like gardens and, and cars and houses and other buildings and other property and so on. Uh, but the second law of thermodynamics, it'll be a wreck after a while. It won't be any use to you. And so this, it's just reminding us here, if we're slothful and, and careless and neglectful and so on, well, the gardens get overgrown with thorns and nettles and the walls break down and bits and pieces fall off and they don't get repaired and there's no maintenance. And so in the end, you've got to ruin the message the lord is trying to get across to us if we neglect our spiritual well-being we'll end up a spiritual ruin it's as simple as that we'll be wrecked at the end of the day our walls will come tumbling down our defences will be gone we'll be overgrown with thorns and nettles the cares the worries of this world will be choked out We'll, we'll we'll lose out. How can we escape, the Bible says, if we neglect so great salvation? So the Bible's telling us here about our di- diligence. Uh, if we're casual and complacent about our walk in the Lord, if we're half-baked about our walk in the Lord, uh, then our spiritual well-being will go down the tubes. There's no doubt about that. That's that's inevitable. That That law will apply just as much to this as it applies to anything else in the world. We will reap what we sow. And if we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. That is an absolute spiritual law. And so the Bible's reminding us, well, okay, be like the ant then. Be diligent. Apply yourself. Get on with it. Uh, Keep yourself busy. Do the things of the Lord. Uh, Take your opportunities. Contribute any pay you possibly can uh, to to the well-being of the church, to the colony. Be consistent in your maintenance. In Matthew 6, it says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, just like the ants. In First Timothy, laying up in store a good foundation against the time to come. Lay hold on eternal life. You've got to be diligent and determined. It says in Galatians, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So the lesson from the end is that uh, we need to have the same unremitting application day by day, time by time, providing, preparing for the future. And so we've got to do those things which the Bible talks about, which we often remind ourselves. We've got to be consistent prayers in the Spirit. We've got to be consistent readers of the Bible. We've got to be consistent meeting attenders. We've got to be consistent in our encouragement and our fellowship with one another. We've got to be consistent in, in being mindful of the unsaved. We've got to be consistent and apply ourselves uh, to all of those things which the Lord would find well-pleasing for the, our sakes and for the, for the colony, as it were. Let's go back to Proverbs 30, because I'm not looking to overly dwell but we are Um, Proverbs 30 where we've got ants that's a brief summary Uh, second one in verse 26 says the conies are but a feeble folk yet make their houses in the rocks now conies are sort of rabbit like creatures they don't have uh, uh, claws they have nails Uh, they've got very weak teeth very very vulnerable Uh, they they would be easy prey for any uh, predator uh, whatsoever So uh, what do they do about that? Well, what they do is they hide in the rocks. They know their vulnerability. God has built some smartness in them. They don't put themselves and expose themselves to danger. Well, they try to not put themselves in that position. So they'll find a rock and they'll hide in rocks and crevices and so on and stay out of the way. It says in Psalm 104, Rocks are a refuge for the conies. Uh, so they don't put themselves at any unnecessary risks, like we should. In Psalm ninety-four, it says, "But the Lord is my defence, and my God is the rock of my refuge." One uh, person who was uh, studying conies, or part of his life's work, he said, "No animal gave us so much trouble to secure. It was hard to grab hold of a coney uh, if they were out in the open in a paddock. Will it be easy? And they'd be easy prey for any birds or any other animals, for that matter. But they—they uh, they were smart enough." to stay out of the way and get behind the rocks. Psalms 27, For in the day of trouble he will hide me, he will set me high upon a rock. In Matthew 7, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock, upon the church, upon the Christ, upon the Holy Ghost experience, upon the security and safety of being in the Lord. Like we read in Matthew 16, And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Psalm 62, Truly my soul waits upon God, from, his, uh, from him comes salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He only is my defence. I shall not be greatly moved. So like the conies, we need to recognise that we can be a bit vulnerable at times, and we can put ourselves in danger unnecessarily. Well, don't. Think about it. Be warned and be advised. Whoops! Here we go again. Right, three times. Uh, no. The one of the other things the conies do uh, is they set up an old male Coney. We have old male cronies in this assembly, but uh, in, the, in in their day they have old male conies who whose job is it to be a sentry. So these, uh, uh, these old conies <laughs> uh, stand guard near the holes where the others are in the rocks and so on to warn his companions when danger approaches. And when danger approaches, the, the old cony whistles, gives that a little whistling sound, and that alerts the others, whoop, there's some danger happening here. Uh, We'd better scurry back to our rock and hide ourselves and make sure we're secure. Well... The Lord has set up in the church, as you well know, some, sometimes they're old cronies. Uh, Hebrews 13 says, obey, this is the Amplified, obey your spiritual leaders and old cronies, I no, it not say that, and submit to them continually, recognizing their authority over you, for they are constantly keeping watch over your souls and guarding your spiritual welfare. So just as the, the male coney is standing guard watching their physical well-being, then there are those the Lord has set in place uh, to be alert to the dangers. That's not a good way to go. That's not the best way to act. This is a better choice. What about doing this? And so on. Uh, to to do exactly what the Bible says, to keep watch over your souls, to be wise under salvation. God has set in motion Uh, the the way by which we can find our safety and security in the Lord and uh, people who can direct us to that safe place or, or, or warn us of the dangerous places and the risks we don't want to put ourselves in. Down in verse 27 of Proverbs 30. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them, by bands. Now, Locusts are generally destructive, and they're very, very destructive when they're together. And the Lord is not highlighting the destructiveness, but the effectiveness. One locust is not going to be a great bother on your front lawn, but 10,000 of them will certainly be a problem. So we're not highlighting the problem as such, but just what is going to be effective. No one's going to care about an isolated grasshopper or a locust, but when they're gathered together, and that's exactly what it says in my margin of my King James Version here, with the word bands, it says in the Hebrew, gathered together. So there's a lesson here about our wisdom in the Lord and salvation. Our strength is going to be when we gather together, not when we're isolated, but rather when we recognise that we've got those people who are working as part of our overall church environment. And how many times in the Bible is it mentioned together? Not just gathered together, but working together. And, and, and there's a lot of togethernesses. In fact, in... Uh, um, In Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So the Lord has established a church for a good reason. He didn't just fill us with the Holy Spirit and send us off and just, oh well, I'll see you in two thousand years. He established a church right from the very beginning in Acts chapter two. It wasn't about individuals, it was about the church. Of course. Each individual has to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. But he also expected us to be part of the overall environment that he established. And the Bible tells us in other places about who we set in the church and how the church is meant to operate and all the environmental things that we're supposed to be involved in as far as the spiritual well-being is concerned. So the locusts have given us an illustration. Effectively, they're useless when they're just on their own, an isolated locust here and there. But when they band together, and they band together because God has given us some smartness in them for to do that, and they band together without some uh, one of the locusts on a white horse charging off with a flag, they 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 do it because God has inbuilt this. God has given us an opportunity to have exercise of free will. It might have been better if he just included in our life the smartness of so many other things, but he's given us a free will and that free will requires us to exercise wisdom where it's supposed to be exercised. We're supposed to learn and we're supposed to recognise that togetherness is our strength, of course. We believe the same things, speak the same things, conduct ourselves accordingly and uh, become team members supporting the side the cause in Colossians it says for though I am away from you in body yet I am with you in spirit delighted at the sight of your standing shoulder to shoulder in such orderly array and the firmness and the solid front and steadfastness of your faith in Christ well I couldn't get any clearer than that could you the locusts are, are going to be effective for whatever they want to do and we want to be constructive rather than destructive of course but we'll be far better if we're supporting and encouraging and uh, praying for and having the same goals and purposes and, and marching in order. In 1 Thessalonians it says we earnestly beseech you brethren admonish them, warn them and seriously advise them those who are out of step the, the disorderly the, the ones who are unruly so Constantly the encouragement of the Bible is for us to get into line, to get into step. We've got ways and means to encourage people. We don't want them going off on tangents. There's no good going alone. It's no good being off in a different direction. You want to uh, be in tune with, uh, with all of us. First Corinthians it says, But I urge and entreat to you, brethren, by the, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in perfect harmony and full agreement in what you say and there be no dissensions or factions or divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in your common understanding and in your opinions and in your judgments. That requires some work, that requires some appreciation and uh, understanding about how this operates. And the best way to get that is here in the meetings, together, hearing, uh, uh, understanding the Word of God and how to apply it. We can be together united like locusts banded together verse 28 the spider takes hold with his hands and his king is in king's palaces i don't think that's a very good translation uh if you look around you'll find that a large number of the translations don't have spider at all they have lizard like a little gecko type thing and what's this limitation well, it says he takes hold with her hands. Well, that doesn't mean much. What, it, what most translations have that identify the lizard, it says this, you can seize the lizard with your hands. The lizard is easy to catch and kill. The lizard can be caught with the hand. You can take care of the lizard with your hands. So that's just four translations I've just met, mentioned there. So it's a lizard that but we used to play a bit of sport with. It. I don't know whether I should confess, but, you know, in the early days, you'd sort of chase a little lizard around and see if its tail fell off. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't a nice thing to do. My, our cat, I say my cat, it's not really my cat. It's Beth's cat. Beth's cat does that. Just the other day, inside our, our kitchen, there was this little lizard that it was playing with, making sport out of this lizard. We need to train our cat a bit better than that, but that's what it does instinctively, I suppose. So you can play around and uh, make sport of lizards. However. You probably could go into one of the palaces and behind the Rembrandt on the wall, be a gecko. got right in there by sneaking through the, the cracks in the walls or under the door or through the even over the walls won't stop and a clump of big wall will come in. and behind the Rembrandt is this gecko waiting for you to go to bed king To rest up that night, or the queen. Run of the palace. Play sport with it and muck around with it and uh, play fun and games with it. But it ends up in the king's palace, which is a place that I've never been other than in a museum. Is there a lesson there? I think there is. The Bible's telling us, well, they may play sport with us, they may persecute us, they may mock us, they may uh, make fun of us in many ways, but here in kings' palaces, we're seated in heavenly places we've got a glorious future awaiting us we've got access to the throne of God now we've got a glorious palace waiting for us let's conclude somewhere over in Ephesians let's go there quickly because I see that time's running out Ephesians chapter verse 1 just quickly you know these scriptures I think pretty well um, well I think you do anyway Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And you have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. The word quickened there means revived, born again, enlivened, made alive again by the Holy Spirit. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We've got about 7.4 billion people on the planet who are all dead. They don't look dead just yet, but hang around for a while and they will. Because if you are not quickened by the Holy Ghost, then you're bound for death. That's all there is. you, you You're done for but if you receive the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul is talking about here, the church at Ephesus, and he knows about the church of Ephesus because in Acts 19 he prayed for them. And they received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. In Acts 19 we, we can read about that experience. And he said, well, that's what you were like. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, uh, you might have looked like you had life because you were breathing and walking around the place, but inwardly, spiritually, you were dead, of course. Wherein, in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit and now worketh in the children of disobedience that's what you were and we had no hope and no future we were not wise under salvation we didn't know what salvation was sometimes we used the term if you were a churchy person i wasn't one of those Salvation wouldn't have been in my vocabulary whatsoever. But I know that some people here, you, you did go to church and I'm sure that you probably thought you were saved. My wife thought she was going to go to heaven and have a piece of cloud or something or other and a harp and, I don't know, float around up there somewhere or other. Uh, we have really no concept about how it all works. It's amazing in this day and age how many people look up when they've done something amazing at the cricket field, or just recently with the, the death of this cricketer and so on, I'm not belittling any of that. But w- all of a sudden, God is up there. Is He somewhere other? And not only is God up there, but the person who got struck down by the cricket ball, he's up there as well. It doesn't matter what sort of life he lived. I'm sorry that he died at 26 years of age, of course. But no matter what age you're at, it, it seems like the world is going to have everybody. We don't even believe in God, most of the time. We don't even believe we came from God. We don't believe that we're created by God. Most most of us believe in evolution out there. We believe that uh, we just live our life and eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. But somehow or other, in our melancholy moments, we look up and we've got everybody up there. Whether he was a, a, a jockey or fell off his horse, he's up there. It's amazing. We are so idiotic. It, it's, it's mind-boggling how stupid people are. But that's what it is. We, we, we believe absolute lies. It's a nice thought that Phil Hughes is looking down upon uh, David Warner making two centuries. and We've been on the front page, I think, of the sun, the paper today. Uh, it doesn't work like that. I Even mean, if you're a wonderful person, you still don't go to heaven straight off. Got to, you sleep in Christ and then Jesus Christ comes back and then you're raised up. So you're still... No one's up there. Well, I'm not sure why we're we looking up anyway. <laughs> maybe a cross <laughs> so, heaven isn't sort of some sort of cloud like city floating around somewhere up there we, we've, we've, we've invented an amazing array of rubbish in our mind and we have deceived and deceiving others well it's changed hasn't it hallelujah we've been we know a bit better verse 6 and raises up to us together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus how by the grace of God, we read in the previous verse, by the spirit and power of God. That's the only way. And now we sit in heavenly places. It's not quite happening yet in that full sense, but we've got access to the throne of grace. We've got the power of God that's available to us. If you go on to verse 18, for through him we both have access now by one spirit under the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We can join with the geckos now in the palace and have the run of the kitchen. That's what the Bible's telling us. We are now a very privileged people indeed. And if you go down to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, remembering the time, because the days are perilous or evil. And so those four illustrations are just for that purpose only. That we we can look at the ant and we can look at ourselves and say, if I want to be wise unto salvation, I need to be a diligent person in the Lord. I can't afford to be slothful and sluggish and slack. I can't afford to neglect my salvation. I can't afford to let things just drift along. I've got to occupy till I come. I've got to be busy about the things of God. I've got to apply myself. I've got to lay up treasure in heaven. I've got to prepare myself for the return of Jesus Christ. I've got to be ready against that day. And we've got to go to the ant and say, all right, ant, I can see that you're a very busy little critter that the Lord's put there. And I want to be a busy little critter for the Lord too. I want to be occupying and doing those things which the Lord wants me to do. And we go to the the coney and we say, but I've got some weaknesses, Lord. I, I am a bit vulnerable. And some people, you know, they think they can just push the boundaries. Oh, I, I wouldn't be caught out by that. They go to places, they do things, they get involved in things that, which are, are inherently dangerous, but some or other we kid ourselves that we're okay. I can be there, I can do that, I can be involved in this, I can skip this, I don't have to worry too much about that, I'm okay. No, the Coney's smart enough to recognise that safety and security is in the rock, and we need to recognise Exactly the same thing. Our safety and security is not in our own resources. It's not in our own abilities. It's not in our own uh, ideas and concepts and wisdom and knowledge and how we can apply ourselves. It's not in our our own grit and determination. Uh, Our safety is in the Lord and the Word of God. Let's do what the Bible says and stop pushing the boundaries. Let's make sure that we are firmly set in the ways of Christ And if the Bible says something, let's believe it. Too many times in this world, and too many times even in spirit-filled people's lives, they decide that, I know what the Bible says, but... And we start to make allowances for other alternatives. And it troubles me deeply that people can do that. We will find a reason not to do exactly what the Bible says... And we'll, we'll, we'll cloud it or we'll, we'll have shroud it with, with all sorts of uh, explanations and reasonings and so on. I mean, I've given you a great example, I think, just recently about how there's a, a bit of a tendency for people to suggest that you need to go into the world to get your partner now. You know, because, oh, well, there's limitations in the church and you can't always find the right person and so on. That's the argument. And so your biological clock could be running out, ladies. So go and get a man in the world. But that's totally contrary to what the Bible says. And we can justify it by saying, oh, well, there's not enough people. I, I can't get to a camp to meet another person. So, What about just trusting God? If God says we are to marry in the Lord, then he has to provide for us someone to marry. It's only reasonable. Pray about it. Look to the Lord about it. Let's not break the scriptures because it's not just happening yet. We've got to stick by what the Bible's got to say. So I just use that as an illustration only. That's not uh, the only one, of course. But there are numerous times that we try to reason with our understanding and our appreciation about what we should do when the Bible tells us what we're supposed to do. And we should stick to what the Bible says and God can then stick to what he's promised to do when we stick to his word. Locusts, well, of course, it's obviously we've got to band together. We're a church. We're the body of Christ. we got to be together. We've got to work together, serve together, love together abide together, do all that's necessary together. It's critical. In this day and age, I don't know whether we can always stay together. I don't know what's going to happen to this world. I'll be able to always meet in a particular place. It may be difficult to even get a place. I don't know. I mean, even right now, I'm going to mention later on, the evergreen, we don't think we can move in necessarily in January now because someone's put some concrete down the sewerage pipe. And so they've got to dig up the the floors now and lay down some more sewage pipes. So we we could be here a bit longer. We're waiting on to see what's going to happen. There's always something that can happen. They've also put the price up too. So we're going to have to get double tithes uh, to pay for it. Another story, though. We'll save that for another day. The locusts, let's work together as a team. And the last one, of course... Uh, we get to the palace. Hallelujah. We're in the palace. We've got a palace waiting for us. We've got, we've got a king of kings who's uh, ruling and reigning in our life. We've got access to the throne of grace. We're above people. We're, a, we're the head, not the tail. Hallelujah. We've got access to, to everything the Lord has got for us, all his resources. The windows of heaven are open. and The windows of God's palace are open for us. So, uh, like a gecko, Let's hang on with our feet. Let's make sure that we've got access to the, to the good things of the Lord. Don't let go, whatever you do. Get your suction caps out and hang on to what the Lord has given us. And in verse 17, wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Wise unto salvation means you've got to understand what the Lord expects of us. And a little bit today. A little bit next Wednesday, a little bit Tuesday, a little bit Wednesday, a little bit next Saturday Sunday. We're constantly building up our, our appreciation and knowledge and understanding and wisdom in the things of God. Every time we read a Bible, every time we pray, every time we're talking to one another, every time we come to meetings, every time we open up the book here and some preacher man gets up the front and talks to you, it's always something about being wise unto salvation. Value it. Really all we've got.